Right. Can you all hear me? Good. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's a good start. That's great. Um, at this moment, I would arrange for my wife to ring me, and the mobile phone would go extremely loud as a just reminder to you all, yeah, that uh, you should put your mobile phones, please, on silent. So, welcome very much. Uh, welcome to this event. This is uh, we're having a talk shortly entitled "The Beverage Plan for an Unruly School." <laughs> Still a bit unruly. Thing that much doesn't change, does it? Um, but we're going to have a talk uh, by Mick Cox, and it's a great pleasure to have Professor Cox with us here. Um, the, ho- the event is actually hosted by LSE Ideas, of which Mick is among other many roles in the school, um, past and present, is, co- is Director of Ideas. Um, he's also Emeritus Professor of International Relations. So strictly speaking, the event is hosted... <laughs> Thank you. Kill it. <laughs> Can, can you turn it to silent, please, or, or mute it or turn it off? Uh, but it's also part of the LSE Festival for 2018, and the theme of the festival, as you'll know, is Beverage 2.0. Um, so this is a very appropriate event because a major part of Beveridge's career, of course, was his term of office as, Bev- as director of the school between 1919 and 1937. My name's David Stevenson. I'm a professor of international history here, so it's my pleasure to be chairing the event today. And I think the situation is that um, Mick will be talking for about 50 minutes. Mick wants to apologise because you've had a cold, I think, so bear with him. He may have to pause from time to time. No, no, don't worry, David. Copious, copious sips of water. I, d- I drank half a bottle of scotch this morning. I'm in good fight, don't worry. Right. <laughs> We're OK. OK, even better. Uh, but <laughs> or, we'll, have plenty of t- we'll have plenty of time after the presentation, I hope, for, for Q&A. Uh, and we'll be running through until 2.45. Um, so we have an hour and a half. I should remind you that the hashtags for today's events... Have, actually, yes, they are up on the screen, I think. Uh, hashtag LSE Beverage, hashtag LSE Festival. Uh, you can also follow on Facebook at LSE Ideas and at LSE Public Events. So, Mick, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, David, for, for chairing this. Uh, congratulations to the school for hosting this, particularly I see in the audience here our current director, the 16th, we call you Manoush now, because um, I think this came very much from many of the, some of the ideas you had, and so well done, and I hope the whole week has been going well. And thank you to the festival, and also thank you to, uh, to my friends in, and team in LSE Ideas who have done a lot to build this. Um, the LSE, as I'm sure you are all very well aware, was founded... In 1895, by four individuals, uh, all members of the Fabian Society, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, about whom more later, George Bernard Shaw, a little less later, and Graham Wallace. But as Beatrice Webb noted in her diary, which I would certainly recommend you to read, uh, the LSE was, as she put it very early on, an odd adventure. For one thing, there had been no other university in the country at the time, or since, as far as I can see, founded by socialists. Just to be awkward, the uh, university-to-be then called itself a school. One of the early founders, George Bernard Shaw, then criticised one of the other founders, Sidney Webb, for appointing too many of the wrong individualist and bourgeois kind onto the teaching staff. Sidney then diverted the original bequest away from Fabian purposes to educational ones, and to cap it all, the bequest itself came from a Derbyshire lawyer who was a Fabian, Henry Hutchinson, who had recently committed suicide. The extraordinary saga continued. 
Sydney's first choice, Sydney Webb, that is. As director was Graham Wallace, political theorist and scientist, very eminent one, one of the main players in the Fabian Society. He turned the job down. The man who took it was the Oxford economic historian, A.W. Hewins. A youthful 29-year-old, by the way, I noticed he wasn't so youthful when he left a few years later, he not only agreed to direct the school, but also to do lectures on economic history. Directors also lectured, note. <laughs> Able and energetic, uh, Hewins turned out to be the perfect partner in bringing Sydney's vision of a school of economics to fruition. By the time the LSE opened its doors on the 10th of October, 1895, Hewins had found accommodation, designed the whole syllabus, gathered support, published a prospectus, and recruited 200 students. However, no doubt exhausted by all this multitasking, Hewins quickly ran out of that famous energy. The school secretary, a famous Christian Miss McTaggart, was clear that he worked far too hard and had much too much to do. After finding the school its second home on Adelphi Terrace a year later in 1896, Hewins then suffered a collapse, not surprisingly, and Sidney Webb had to take over the work of organizing builders and the move into the new premises. But by the end of three years, a thousand students from 16 countries had registered as students, and within five years, the London School of Economics and Political Science was ready to join the new university or the University of London. His directorship ended abruptly in November 1903 when he accepted the post of secretary to Joseph Chamberlain's Tariff Commission, basically fighting for tariff reform and empire. His last book, I think, is brilliantly entitled Apologia of an Imperialist. Fine book it is too. Uh, his successor was Halford Mackinder, the geographer, was equally keen on empire, and indeed wrote about it in a series of brilliant studies that helped lay the foundation of that highly problematic subject, geopolitics. Mackinder was director for the next five years, between 1903 and 1908. And while at the school, he developed in 1904 his famous heartland theory of world politics. After 1908, he concentrated on advocating the cause of imperial unity, but continued to lecture at the LSE for several years. He later became a unionist MP in Glasgow. Two directors, two Tories, two imperialists. <laughs> One suspects that Sidney Webb must have decided it was about time to appoint a genuine Fabian to be director. The choice was Pemba Reeves, a New Zealander. It was an understandable choice. Reeves had quite a reputation as a reformer in his own country. But it was not, perhaps, the wisest choice. Not for any political reasons, perhaps, but rather more personal ones. Poor Reeves did not have the right temperament for the job, it seems. He also suffered two big blows. <clears throat> Firstly, his daughter, Amber Reeves, had a much publicised, romantic, indeed, well-publicised sexual affair with a very well-known public figure and married writer... H.G. Wells. And from this, a daughter was born. Wells, of course, not known for modesty, then wrote about the whole affair in one of his novels called Anne Veronica in 1909. Reeves was not amused. 
Reeves then lost his son during the First World War. It was all very tragic. And by the time Reeves left the post, reluctantly, it has to be said, in 1919, the school was effectively being run by, guess who, the famous Miss McTaggart. <coughs> Women have always run the school, it seems to me. But it now desperately needed a new director to take it forward. And the final choice, and I emphasise the word final choice, was to be William Burbridge, the subject of my lecture this afternoon. But who was he? No doubt it's been discussed this afternoon, but I don't know if you've been to all the lectures, so I'm going to say something about him. What sort of institution did he inherit? Why was he chosen by Sidney Webb? Because it was Sidney who really made most of these decisions, indeed nearly all of them. What can he bring to the job? Uh, what were his achievements while director? But why in the end did he cut what I think uh, the Webbs referred to as a sorry and lonely figure at the school by the time he left for Oxford in the second half of the 1930s? And finally, what link, if any, is there between this history and the Beveridge Report? And William Beveridge was born in 1879 in India. His father, Henry Beveridge, was in the Indian Civil Service. His more remarkable mother, I'm bound to say, was a member of the Stourbridge Unitarian community who, with Elizabeth Mallison, had found in the, founded the Working Women's College in Queen Square in London in 1864. I think it gives you a flavour of, of her and, and the impact that she was then to have on, on the young William. She met and married Henry in Calcutta, where she had gone quite independently in 1873 to open a school for Indian girls. Throughout most of his adult life, by the way, she exercised a profound influence on William. Most of his most interesting uh, letters, actually, are between William and, uh, and his mother until she died. Beveridge was educated at Charterhouse and then went on to study mathematics and classics at Balliol, where he obtained the first. Looking for a career, he decided uh, to study at the bar, but rather quickly decided against his father's advice, and he was most, most annoyed, that this was, he didn't think it was a very good thing. There was more to life than being a lawyer, he said. There you go. I hope there are a few lawyers in the audience here. <laughs> there was indeed, and like many young men and women of his class at the turn of the century, he was drawn to thinking increasingly about the social question. Or like Charles Booth before him, C. Bohm Roundtree's famous studies up in York, and, of course, the formidable Beatrix Ware. But instead of just studying the facts at a distance, he decided to enter the community called Tavistock Hall in 1903. Situated in East London, it provided educated but concerned young people, men and women, with a chance to see what life was really like for the real working class. It's like going to the people English style. <laughs> Within a year, he had met Beatrice and Sidney Webb, and though at first day, or at least Beatrice, did not like him much, he confessed, later they were, at least according to Beveridge, one round his energy, commitment, and expertise. Indeed, within a very short space of time, he had developed important ideas on unemployment and the idea of labour exchanges. Very soon, he became the acknowledged expert on both. Indeed, 
his 1909 book uh, on unemployment, uh, a problem for industry, became the definitive work on the subject. Meanwhile, the ever-entangling Beatrice Webb, who was always trying to spin her own kind of web <laughs> around people of note and talent, <laughs> I rather like that for him, <laughs> came to see in Beveridge an important ally, some sort of willing instrument in her ongoing efforts to recast the old 1834 poor law, which, of course, had a commission which ran all the way from 1904 right through the Liberal government until about 1910-1912. A special but complex relationship was to last until the death of the Webbs in the 1940s had already been struck. Tavistock Hall, however, could not hold the young and ambitious beverage for long, and he moved on to become a journalist with the Tory Morning Post in 1905, for which he wrote for the next few years. When asked at the job interview about his own views at the time, he said that although he was not a social, not a conservative, he was only a little bit socialist. One should stress a little bit. Admittedly, he occasionally spoke at Fabian meetings. Many of his friends were Fabians. But he was not one himself, really. Indeed, I think he was then what I think he remained throughout most of his life, a scientific reformer who was genuinely concerned with the appalling economic and social health of the nation, partly for moral reasons, partly for reasons of efficiency, always important, partly because he thought from a rationalist point of view that a people who are badly housed, poorly educated, undernourished and in ill health were unlikely to make a useful contribution to national well-being, partly because reform from above was the best way to avoid more radical solutions coming from below, and partly because he thought the Germans had got it right. Indeed, though it became impossible to talk openly of such things after 1914, for fairly obvious reasons, it is worth noting how much Beveridge, and indeed Lloyd George, were seriously impressed with Germany's social system, if not with its naval construction. A man with his vast knowledge of economic conditions, married to his not inconsiderable administrative skills, soon found himself drastic drafted into the war effort in after 1914. First, through the Board of Trade, then the Ministry of Munitions, where, by the way, he ran up against the militant Glasgow trade union movement, who never forgave him, by the way. And I don't think he ever forgave them. And I think this was the beginning of an alienation between Beveridge and trade unions, and to some degree also the Labour Party, strangely enough. And finally, through the Ministry of Food, where he worked on rationing, there's one wonderful letter he sends to the Webbs. I'm thinking about potatoes. Which, of course, doesn't sort of strike you as the most exciting thing, but if you're living in Britain in 1918, it's rather important. And anybody who knows about the Irish question will know how important it once was, of course. By all accounts, he was effective in all three posts. But interestingly, he yearned for more international experience and was sent to Vienna. He was, by the way, a fluent German speaker to see what conditions were like there immediately after the war. They were, as he pointed out to the British government at the time, quite appalling. 
In fact, he warned that if something were not done quickly to rehabilitate Central Europe as a whole, Bolshevism was at least one likely result. But his plea for a more humane or humane and constructive policy carried little weight at the time. Perhaps it was time to move on. Beveridge was also looking for new professional possibilities outside government, a more creative role. Being inside the machine had its appeal, but it was restrictive, as he openly admitted. An opportunity then presented itself when Sidney Webb, whom of course he had known for over 15 years, approached him to, quote, think about applying for the now vacant post as director of the LSE. <coughs> Yet it was not what one might call a shoo-in. <laughs> they never are, I'm told. Sidney and Beatrice admired Beveridge's previous work. They recognised his commitment to social reform. Later, Sidney even talked of Beveridge as an energetic and even an adventurous administrator. <laughs> he looked like the perfect candidate for the job. Yet it was not a straightforward meeting of minds. As Beveridge's biographer, Jose uh, Harris, points out, by the end of the war, much of Beveridge's early idealism appeared to have been knocked out of him. By now, that little bit of socialism had almost disappeared, though perhaps not completely. The Webbs, on the other hand, and it's always worth remembering, did the opposite of what most of the left generally tended to do historically. Instead of moving to the centre and then to the right, they shifted further to the left as a result of World War I. Of course, it was Sydney who drafted the 1918 Constitution of, of, of the Labour Party calling nationalisation, in fact. <laughs> Clause 4, so-called. Furthermore, though, though they were now key players in the Labour Party and the trade union movement, uh, Beveridge seemed to have little great sympathy with either, particularly for trade unions. There was also the question of temperament. Beveridge, it could be said, was not always the sweetest of men. <laughs> he could be dismissive of those with lesser talent than he. He could be insensitive. Beatrice has ever summed it all up. Beveridge is too mechanical-minded. One never comes into contact with his intellect or his emotions. Beatrice was nothing tough on people, but often true. Very perceptive. She was always very perceptive, to be sure. The same, however, about uh, contact with intellect or emotions could not be said of John Maynard Keynes, whom Sidney courted assiduously and with what from the outside at least looks like more ardour than he had displayed when courting Beveridge in 1919. Indeed, in April of the same year, he discussed the idea of Keynes as director with Steele Maitland, the chairman of governance. According to Norman Mackenzie, the great editor of the West, Steele Maitland had his reservations about Keynes, but Keynes was definitely, according to Mackenzie, Sydney's first choice. The offer was made. Keynes waited for a while. But Keynes declined. I had no intention of accepting, he wrote to his mother in May. But Sidney, ever persistent, would not give up. 
If Keynes would not accept the directorships, perhaps he would accept something else. So, in June 1919, just after Keynes had resigned in protest from the peace delegation in Paris, Sidney tried another tack and sent him a note congratulating him on his resignation from the, from the delegation in Paris at the time and expressing his, and of course Beatrice's, sympathy with his decision to withdraw from what we suspect was a horrid atmosphere in Paris. By the way, they always used the royal wing. Uh, they never kind of spoke individually. They were, they were kind of joined in many, many ways. Then, being Sydney in the same letter, he then offered Keynes another job as the new chair of banking and currency. <laughs> never gave up, did Sydney. But as we know, Keynes was no more interested in becoming head of the Faculty of Commerce at the LSE than in becoming its director. He was too Cambridge. And that, I think, says quite a lot about the difference, by the way. But what was Keynes and indeed Beveridge being offered? It was a mixed bag, to be sure. Facilities were basic, and I mean basic. Most of the students were part-time. And the Webs, let us be honest, were not everybody's political cup of tea. <laughs> they were certainly not Keynes's. Yet in spite of this, the LSE had already achieved a great deal with very little. Thus, since its creation, it had attracted some very fine teachers, though most on a part-time basis. It had an enviable publishing output. It had an admirable library for research. It could also boast having admitted very large numbers of women who could actually take degrees, unlike Cambridge. And by the way, the numbers of women increased proportionally during World War I. It had also been academically creative, not only in teaching a range of courses across the social and economic sciences, but also in delivering a large and lucrative course on railway economics to over 300 professionals from the industry, as well as a course to the army, which, by the way, lasted until the early 1930s, basically brought in by Mackenda. It was also beginning to acquire uh, an international reputation across the empire, across the Atlantic, and across the Channel, too. Indeed, it was from one part of the empire, India, with support provided by the Tata family after 1912, that Sidney and Beatrice Webb were able to bring R.H. Tawney, the economic historian, and the future Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, to the school to teach and write on fundamental social questions. The LSE had gone global long before Beveridge came on the scene. Beveridge, in other words, did not inherit a desert, as he himself was generous enough to point out in at least two of his books. Power and Influence, published in 1953, and the LSE and its problems. That's, by the way, a very typical Beveridge book title, the LSE and its problems. <laughs> Hardly a bestseller. It's actually very good, in fact. In fact, by the time he was offered the post in the autumn of 1919, the school was already looking forward, as he admitted, to a pretty bright future. It was about to begin a commerce degree, which was very successful. It had just acquired a large donation from that fantastic Jewish financier, Sir Ernest Castle. Grandfather, by the way, of Edwina Mountbatten. 
student numbers were only up by 3,000 by 1919 and 20, back to their original numbers. However, it now needed a boost, and Beveridge was to supply it. Even those whom he sometimes rubbed up the wrong way, and there were more than a few, were generous in their praise. None more so than Hugh Dalton, a socialist who lectured on economics at the school in the 1920s, and who later went on to become Chancellor of the Exchequer in the first Labour government of 1945. Beveridge, he noted in his memoirs, that is to say Dalton's memoirs, had done a lot of first-class jobs in his life, but none better, nor with more energy, resourcefulness and determination than the expansion of the LSE in the earlier years of his directorship. His appointment was pivotal, according to Dalton, with a humdrum successor to Pembereeves, writes Dalton. We should have made little progress. We should have gone on living insignificantly in a quiet backwater leading out of the busy strand. Now, whether Beatrice would have thought of the school before Beveridge as a quiet backwater off the strand, I somehow doubt. If nothing else, this seems to suggest that her Sydney had achieved next to nothing. Nevertheless, she was as ever, if not balanced in her judgment. Beveridge certainly had his faults, and she spotted them early. But his work after 1919, she later confessed, constituted something like a second foundation. There is much to this claim. It was through his efforts that the school was physically created. It was once remarked that he was the great empire builder upon whom the cement never set. A pretty good description of the school today. (laughs) (laughs) Though they don't use cement any longer. (laughs) It was also a result of his hard work that the faculty moved from being primarily part-time to becoming primarily full-time. Their numbers rocketed too. Lecturers now also got their own rooms. Can you imagine? (laughs) And witnessed an improvement in their salary. I don't know about their pension. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry to be so contemporary <laughs> can't, can't avoid it Too political aren't I really And those student numbers remained about the same Throughout about 3,000 The numbers didn't go up actually very much in that period Nor could they given the limited space Their quality improved As they transitioned from being occasional To full time Beveridge was certainly very proud of all this And provided numerous tables in his various annual reports, I'll, I've had to read them, you don't have to. Let the facts speak for themselves was his yearly motto. He loved facts. And boy, did he love facts. Thus, in one table, I'll just give you a couple of examples here. This is very beverage, by the way. Thus, in one table, he shows that whereas in 1922 to 1923, the school could boast 51,085 square feet of accommodation... By 1936 to 1937, it now had 133,760 square feet. Nice to know. Over the same time, the school's income, according to Beveridge, and this is from the figures, rose from about 25,000 in 1919. It did rise rather rapidly in 1920, the year in which he was appointed, to 135,000 and 14 pounds when he left. 
You find this throughout all of Beruginsky, constant references to this. The statistical measurement of achievement isn't about my opinion. These are the clear facts. He was a good old positivist, really. The facts do and will and should speak for themselves. We'll come back to that later on because it brings us to the heart of some of his views on social science as well. He didn't much like theory, as we shall see. So Beveridge, as we can see, was an ardent fundraiser and knew that without new money, the LSE was likely to languish. And he struck gold early when a representative from what was called the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Memorial Fund, part of the Rockefeller Foundation, Beardsley Rummel approached uh, Graham Wallace, whom I mentioned earlier on, the man who turned down the job at the beginning, with an offer to support the social sciences at the LSE. It was an extraordinary offer by any stretch of the imagination. <coughs> Beveridge pounced, <coughs> literally. And from 1920 through most of the 1930s, he courted the Rockefeller Foundation with what I can only call a Don Juan passion. That was second to none. And to good effect, as the LSE budget of the day revealed. Indeed, about 25% of the budget of the school was courtesy of the Rockefellers. No wonder when David Rockefeller, going down the line of it, was looked after ever so well when he studied at the school in 1937. Even to the extent of being provided with one of the few surviving Elizabethan rooms in London. Quite small, according to David Rockefeller, who came to study economics for a year under Lionel Robbins and Hayek, but very handy for the LSE. Oh, by the way, they provided me with a cleaner and a cook. Not what I would call a typical master's experience. <laughs> Although maybe things will improve in the future, because we're keen to improve the LSE student experience. <laughs> oh, I'm enjoying this. <laughs> Beveridge also did an enormous amount to widen the curriculum. All the stuff about faiths. Until the 1920s, there was, for example, little of what we might call international studies being taught at the school. Goldsworthy Lois Dickinson, one of my new heroes, by the way, had it as true lectured on aspects of international affairs. Though he was based in Cambridge, he did lecturing here. Indeed, it was Dickinson who, while lecturing at the school, again on a part-time basis, coined the term League of Nations. <coughs> while at the same time penning his, cla- penning his uh, authoring his classic, The European Anarchy in 1916. But it was really only after the war that the international side of things was developed, I think, with chairs... In international relations, uh, Philip Noel Baker uh, in 24, and then Charles Manning, 30-31. International law, the great Herschel Alter Pact came at that period. And, of course, international history. First Arnold J. Toynbee, and then the exile from Aberystwyth, uh, Charles Webster, who came here to Stevenson. Economics also received a major boost with the appointments of Lionel Robbins in 1929, the very young Lionel Robbins. Arnold Plant in commerce in 1930, and of course, Hayek in 1930-31. The same could also be said of anthropology in the period, with the appointment of Malinowski to a chair. He'd been here for some time in social anthropology in 27. Then there was the appointment of the famous Harold Lasky. He had been here since 20, but he got his chair in 26. Tawney had been here for years, but he got the chair of economic history in 31. And of course, the magnificent Eileen Power, 
the economic historian of the medieval period in the same subject in the same year in 1931. Meanwhile, three years earlier, and we, we could do a bit more work on this, Beveridge helped launch a follow-up study to Charles Booth's earlier uh, London life and labour. Nor was Beveridge indifferent to what was happening in the wider world. Uh, the Depression was something which preoccupied him, of course, after 1929-31. He wrote about it, though largely it has to be said, to criticise Keynes's various policy prescriptions. Beveridge was no Keynes in there at all. Equally watched with horror as events unfolded in Germany and Austria during the 1930s. Indeed, and I think this was one of his very great achievements. It was largely as a result of his efforts and those of Lionel Roberts and others. But he was there. The British universities came to the rescue of many of those academics threatened by fascism through what became known as the Academic Assistance Council. All told, it rescued nearly 1,500 academics. LSE academics were even asked to pay a small part of their salary to support all these efforts. By the 1930s, Lionel Robbins usually had very little positive to say about beverage. But even he was forced to admit that when it came to taking a stand and doing something about the unfolding crisis, all his best instincts, his sympathy with the unfortunate, his sense of civilised values were quickened. And that's a great testament to Beveridge. Moreover, the LSE itself benefited as one exile after another from Karl Mannheim to Franz Neumann to a number of legal exiles like Otto Kahn Freund and the great statistician Klaus Moser found refuge at school. But all was not well. There were early rumblings about Beveridge's rather high-handed approach to running the school, something which he went out of his way to deny in later reflections of his Bowser. But by the middle of the 1930s, something clearly uh, was up. Again, it was the ever-observant Beatrice Webb who talked about it in her private diaries. And she records in July 1936 a visit by the then chairman of governors, Lord Josiah Stamp. The reason for the visit, she records, was, quote-unquote, the crisis at the London School of Economics. Where there had been, in her words, paraphrasing stamps, a violent upheaval led by the representative committee of the professors on the Committee of Governors against Beveridge. Moreover, it was not just one faction of the school professoriate that was in a revolt, but all of them from Robbins and his group, the free marketeers, if you like, on the right, over to Lasky and Eileen Power and their group on the broad left. As Beveridge later put it, they could not be united about anything, but the one thing which came to unite them was this question. But what was the cause of all this commotion? Stamp left the webs in no doubt. It was Beveridge's close, all too close, relationship with Jesse or Janet Meyer, the school secretary, 
and close confidant of Beveridge. Beveridge might remain. However, if she did not go, something Beveridge refused to contemplate, the professors would, quote, resign wholesale. Lady Macbeth. (laughs) Beveridge's biographer deals with all this in excruciating detail in the second edition, and some would say unfair detail. Jose Harris is in little doubt that the deeper problem was personal and seems to lay most of the blame for the crisis at Beveridge's increasingly close relation with Janet Mayer, who later, of course, became Beveridge's wife, uh, Lady Beveridge, and of course he referred to her throughout his life as, 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 as Janet. Janet was indispensable for Beveridge. Much of what he achieved he could not have done without her, I think. That much is obvious. But what is equally obvious is the hostility that she created and generated amongst many senior academics at the school. Then there was the issue of governance. Heard all this before. Beveridge claimed he was most inclusive. However, as Ralph Darendorf in his great book on the history of the LSE points out, there was no written constitution for the school defining the powers of the various bodies, including the powers of the director. And inevitably, this lack of clarity was bound to feed the belief that the school was too top-heavy, to put it mildly. One lecturer even talked of a beverage mayor axis running the school. That, by the way, was Kingsley Martin, who was hardly a sympathetic observer. He was then edited, by the way, of the New Statesman, which had also been founded as a result of the Webbs. I think none of this might have caused a crisis if the times themselves, the 1930s, had not been such convulsive ones. But the collapse of market capitalist certainties after the Wall Street crash, the political crisis of 1939-31 in the United Kingdom, the national government, the exponential rise of fascism across most of Europe, and the great Soviet experiment at the time, all taken together made the political atmosphere everywhere in the West, and in this country, and in this school, febrile. Beatrice Webb again surely got it right in 1934 when she observed political and economic studies carried on in London, one of the hubs of the world, by an assembly of 3,000 students, taught by a miscellaneous staff, is bound to develop heated antagonism of creed and class. Indeed, it did. Polarisation was the result. Thus, the free marketeers at the school, led by Robbins and Hayek and Plant, attacked the socialists in the government department, which is Lasky. Meanwhile, Harold Lasky demanded the right to speak on whatever topic, in whatever place, including Moscow, thus forcing the director Beveridge to try and quieten him down in order, in Beveridge's view, to protect the academic reputation of the school. Harold Lasky, in turn, responded, like Lasky would, by crying foul. Reverend Beveridge was between a rock and a hard place. Nor, one suspects, could Beveridge have approved of the Webb's newfound obsession with the Soviet Union. They, in turn, privately, began to turn against what they saw as Beveridge's increasing economic orthodoxy. Beatrice Webb again. She, naturally enough, in conversations 
up Passfield corner, naturally enough saw the world economic crisis as a representing the final crisis of capitalism. And she continued to see that right until her death. Beveridge, however, was no anti-capitalist. And according to Beatrice, saw the remedy to unemployment in lowering wages. Otherwise, says Beveridge, quote, quoted by Beatrice, the capitalist will take his money and to other countries where labour is cheap. Beatrice was, of course, outraged at the suggestion. The old alliance was coming apart. Then there was the issue of science and the social sciences. Beveridge held to two views on this. One, that the closer the social sciences could get to the natural sciences, the better. Moreover, and secondly, that much of what was now passing for the social sciences and economics at the school was far too abstract and far too theoretical. Indeed, as, as, as shown in the, in the great book by Ralph Darendel, he moved and in the end drew money from the Rockefellers to establish a department of social biology in 1930 to resolve these issues and to bring the social sciences closer to the natural sciences. He even appointed a brilliant professor to run the department with the magnificent name Lancelot Hogbell. A great biologist, famous at the time, as famous as many others, by the way. He was a known radical who'd been a pacifist in World War I, an opponent of racism in South Africa, where he had worked for a while, and interestingly, a well-known critic of the so-called science of eugenics. He quite, he quite admired Beveridge. Indeed, he thought he had a pretty rotten job but simply could not stand the polar positions now defining politics at the school. It should also be added that the Department of Social Biology found little place within the school, although it did give rise to some important studies on population and the Population Investigation Committee. So it did have a legacy, even though, even though Hogben, who was a brilliant man in many ways, by the way, uh, finally left to go up to Scotland. He wrote wonderfully popular books on science, by the way, you know, Mathematics for the Millions. He was a great popularizer and much known. The first time I'd ever heard of Hogbed was an old South African Marxist friend of mine who said, you should read Hogbed. I'd never heard of it, but I found that he finally came to the school. But when, when Hogbed left, um, not in a good mood, it has to be said, Beveridge, I think, had yet another reason to look for the door marked exit. There was also a crisis looming on the Rockefeller front. Beveridge in the LSE had done very well because of the connection, but by the second half of the 1930s, the relationship was wearing thin. The Rockefeller Foundation wished to shift their focus from supporting what they called institutions to something different. And they had heard of all the problems now facing the school. So in 1937, they terminated their money. Finally, and this is finally, uh, and then I'll bring it to a conclusion, Beveridge, I sense, and I sense this throughout his life and through various of his letters, really wanted to get back to doing real research on things that really interested him. Now, there's a kind of constant tension in Beveridge between having to run the school and really wanting to get on with research. 
Um, and he found there was a fundamental contradiction between, between the two of them. He may have exercised power at the LSE, although in diminishing amounts, but he felt that he could exercise much greater influence, not through wielding power, but through developing ideas and then applying them. In this regard, he held the webs up as exemplars. They had, and he makes an absolutely brilliant observation about the webs, they had little measurable power he once observed, but they exercised as much influence as any two people in the first half of the 20th century, which is true. Because, in fact, quoting Beveridge, no one suspected them of power. Which I'm not entirely sure it's true. true. I think that's a very interesting observation. This kind of sense of this constant conflict in his own mind. Okay, I've got this power running the school, but I really want influence. The sort of influence I exercised before the First World War in my work on unemployment. This is what I really want to get back. Even as early as late as 1929, 1930, it's beginning to look for a research position, even within the school itself. So you could dump all this administration and get on with what he really wants to, to write about. Uh, and he, he never really did very much, actually, at the school in terms of what I call profound research. It's kind of interesting period, quite a fallow one for him. He did this huge, huge, huge extended study on prices, but it never ended. And you couldn't work out what the point of it was in the end, and I think it's almost completely unread today. Indeed, I would want to suggest, by way of a conclusion, that Beveridge without power was what he wanted to have, no power, so he could exercise influence. Indeed, we might even suggest that Beveridge without power, when he wrote his famous report in 1942, was paying something of a backhanded compliment to the Webbs. Influence. Of seeking to influence the debate about welfare without, in fact, having any power at all to carry it through. By 1942, of course, he had been five years away from the LSE, and the Webbs would soon be dead. Beatrice in 1943, and Sydney in 1947. But one could argue, I think, with reasonable certainty, that without his 18 years at the LSE and his even longer relationship with his two key founders, the Webbs, the plan which finally bore his name may never have seen the light of day. Well, thanks very much, Mick. And uh, that was a very full and fascinating account of Beveridge's role as director with lots of contemporary references. Thank you very much for those. Um, While people are thinking of questions, we've got plenty of time, by the way, for discussion. Um, And I'm looking forward very much to seeing how this all works out as the chapter in the book that you're writing on the history of the school. Get the lawyers on it first, But a couple of things. First of all, could you say a bit more about Beveridge and the students, particularly with reference to this episode with the student newspaper, The Vanguard, Mm -hmm. which is one of the aspects of this crisis in in the mid-1930s? And the other sort of broader question is whether there's a kind of Greek tragedy here, the very things that make Beveridge successful in the 1920s get him into trouble and crisis in the 1930s. Mm. Okay. firstly on the students... Um, if you look around the school, uh, in, in, uh, on the fourth floor in the, in the cafe, in the, in the old building, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of wonderful photographs of Beveridge with students. 
Uh, and, and you can see how many students there are from, from the Raj, from the Empire. It's quite a fascinating study of the, of the sociology and the ethnicity of the school at the time. And um, there's lots of photographs of him pe with people playing hockey. He, he, one of the things he says he did most to achieve was actually to get, get playing fields up and running. You know, it was yeah, very, yeah. very 20s and 30s, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but so, I, I think he actually really enjoyed the students. Mm. I think there's no doubt about that. Um, he, he may have had all sorts of problems with some of his uh, professorial uh, colleagues, as, he, as, as I've shown, and as shown in both those two books in front of you. But nonetheless, there was something that he liked about the students. He liked their energy. He liked giving that annual talk mm. to the students. Now, the problem became is when the students became stroppy. And they became increasingly stroppy in the early part of the 1930s. Some of them did, at least. Now, we don't actually know the full political history of the student union in the 30s. We can pick up bits and pieces of it. But if I might just make a silly generalisation, which is so obvious, it, the student body as a whole clearly shifted to the left. Uh, after, after the Wall Street crisis, after the collapse of the 31 30, government, the national government, the Soviet experiment was drawing quite a lot of them towards it, the communist movement was on the rise, fascism was to come to power in 32, 33 in Germany, five-year plans looked like the future to so many people, including the Webs, by the way who talked of the Soviet USSR as a new civilization, first with a question mark and then without the question mark, 1937. Not a good date to remove the question mark, I would have thought. Um, but nonetheless, there was clearly uh, cells and groups of leftists, very, very hard-line hard leftists at the school in the early 30s. Um, one of, the, one of the stories I could tell, this is a, not about the, the vanguard, I will mention that in a moment, was, a, was, a, was the son of a banker, the son of an American banker, a very wealthy banker. His name was Sweezy. And the young Paul Sweezy came to the school to study under Hayek and Robbins, free market economics, got entangled with good old radical uh, Harold Lasky, read Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, which he had never read back at Harvard, and went home a Marxist. <laughs> and uh, later, of course, for those of you who know your history of the left, which I do, I'm one of the last surviving zoological specimens here on this. <laughs> I was there, you know. Ah, so, you know, you can photograph me now. Put me on your wall next to Leon Trotsky. Um, he went home, and of course, he, he, he studied under Schumpeter at Harvard, wrote a wonderful book called Theory of Capitalist Development in 1942, which should have been awarded a Nobel Prize in Economics, but it was too early for that, I know, and later established the Marxist Journal Monthly Review. Now, I think that gives you a kind of flavour of the time. You know, people were shifting to the left. There were the Indian students here, too, by the way, who were shifting to the left, highly influenced by, by, by Lasky. Indeed, I, f I found one, one letter from uh, Webb to Beveridge saying, watch out. The communists are trying to infiltrate the Indian students. He called them the natives. You know, so that was clearly going on. Now, what happened was there was a communist party group inside the LSE. They were there were also Trotskyists too, by the way, and then there was left-wing Labour. Um, but, but the communists were clearly quite well organised here. Again, it'd be interesting to kind of dig into that. You don't have to do red scares in order to know they were communists here. And two of them was a man called Simon... H.J. Uh, Simons, and the other one was a man called Mayer. 
Now, the story was, and it's just it's a long story, but it's, for me at least it's an interesting one, rather nostalgically. I wasn't really a Communist Party member myself, of course, but they, they kind of said, well, we're going to... They named a member of staff who apparently was giving information to the special branch. I mean, and then they distributed the, 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 the newspaper, and then, you know, and then Beveridge said, we can't do that, you know. Even Harold Lasky got annoyed by this behaviour, and uh, both of them were expelled from the school. And this was a bit of a course celebre. Then uh, Harold, who didn't agree with what the students had done, then at least tried to explain what they'd done. They shouldn't be expelled. Beveridge saw this as a betrayal and kind of siding, siding with the students. You know, so it, it does kind of exemplify it, but exemplify the period rather well. There's, a, there's an interesting series of stories which follow that, which I have followed up by. H.J. Simon was a man called Jack Simon, who went on to become the theoretician of the South African Communist Party. Very interesting man. And the other one was Mayer, who actually went on to become a neoconservative in the, 19, in the 1940s and the 1950s. It had an enormous influence, by the way, on Ronald Reagan. And when Mayer finally died, Ronald Reagan said, he was our great inspirer, even though he'd been a very active member of the Communist Party here at the LSE. But it does tell you something of, 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 of the atmosphere of the school in the period. And I think that atmosphere is, I think, you know, make, running the school there was you know, not, not an easy job, particularly for a kind of what I call centre-centre-left, centre-right liberal like Beverly. The Greek tragedy side, I... I the, the, see, I like this book in many ways. This is Jose Harris's her book. It's very, very good, the second edition. Uh, but I, I think she misses that sense yeah. of the tragic about um, about beverage, I feel. You know, I, I, the, 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 it's not an easy job running the school. I, I look up to Minutia. Um, and I think this was equally true of, of your predecessors, uh, Craig and uh, Howard and, uh, and Tony, the ones who I got to know quite well. It's not, it's not an easy job. And, and Webb himself said, this. Sydney said, it can't be an easy job running the LSE. Uh, and by God, he was right to do it. But I think there was an element of the tragic about this, because all the things that gave him the power to do what he did, and let's be honest, he achieved an enormous amount. We don't have to overrate his role, because there was something here to build on. Yeah. Nonetheless, I think at the same time, it's easy to condemn to find all the things that he got wrong, his personal relationship with Janet, to look at all the things and the faults. But nonetheless, he was a highly complex individual, and I think that's what also makes him interesting for, for a biographer as much as it is for a historian of the school. It is that complexity of the man. That's what gives him his flesh and blood, really. All the faults, but all the great achievements. And quite often, are there any great men or women who don't combine all those faults and strengths and weaknesses and you know, downsides and upsides? Great. OK, so that's a good note on which to open this up. Um, hopefully there's lots of questions and thoughts. Who'd like to start off? Gen gentleman here, yeah? The blue pullover? Yes, sir. <coughs> yes, if you can wait for the roving mic, please. Yeah. Uh, Professor Cox, thank you very much for your uh, talk. Um, you mentioned um, Beveridge uh, um, considering that the closer social sciences got to, to natural sciences, mm. the better. And I think that there is a, uh, to me, there's a sort of rich seam of, of uh, interest there, and, and it would be great to see some sort of economic versus... Uh, and sort of Darwinian uh, uh, studies um, being presented. Um, but but I, I, it, it struck a chord that actually it, it, it comes back to, Manoush, something you brought up in your November speech to open this festival, that th about the, the new five giants, um, 
uh, the, 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 the sort of constructs breaking, uh, breaking down that have sustained humanity for thousands of years, um, some of those breaking. And I think that, I wonder if you could unpack some of the sort of natural sciences elements, <laughs> if, if there are any that he spoke on. Thank you. Well, I'll, I'll try and deal with it not in terms of the beverage report. I think uh, how much that comes out in the beverage report. Uh, maybe, David, you talked about this the, the other night. Um, uh, there is, but just talking on what I was talking about this evening, thinking about beverages and the social sciences. Um, trained as a mathematician, remember, some of the books he was most influenced by was Huxley, of the natural sciences of the, of the late 19th and early 20th century. He clearly was influenced by some of the writings on eugenics, although that, is, that itself is a very complicated subject as well. The more I kind of looked into eugenics, the more complicated it actually becomes, because there's clearly what I would call the nasty wing of eugenics, without, without a doubt. Racial hierarchy, sexual hierarchy, class hierarchy, justification for empire. The people are naturally one thing, and that's it. You know, and that has some very nasty ramifications, as we well know. Uh, there's the other side of what I call progressive eugenics, if you can think of it in those terms. That is to say that many of the eugenicists, uh, including, by the way, someone like Richard Tippers, who, 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 who worked for the Eugenics Review, nonetheless saw, well, look, it's nature or nurture. And those who keep saying it's about your genes forget the environment best way to improve the genes, if you wish, or to improve the life of people isn't to keep saying they're genetically inferior, it is to improve their social conditions. By improving their social conditions, you will improve them, and you will make their lives better. And, and in some sense, you could say that the, the debate about social improvement, uh, the, five, the, the tackling of the five evils... Uh, all these kinds of things, did derive from a, a kind of much larger debate, which does, I suppose, have some origin in, in, within the eugenics movement. But I think, in a way, I call it progressive. Maybe that's the wrong word, but you know what I'm getting at for. And I think this is where I, I think this is where he wanted to drive the social sciences much more, thinking that the natural sciences, you know, was a, was a, a, a route towards getting a better a better social science. Um, now, whether this was ever feasible or, or doable, I think, is, is, a, is a much larger subject. He created, as I said, this rather remarkable experiment called the Department of Social Biology, about which Garendorf writes quite a lot, yeah. um, between, what, 30, 31, and 36, 35, 36, before Hogben left. And um, that was an attempt to kind of root more social, particularly population studies. This was creepy, by the way, population studies. Because the big question for population wasn't the Malthusian one, there's too many people. It was the 20th century one, I, there's not enough. Yeah. You know, population was dropping like a stone after the First World War, and people started to ask the question, why? Now, you could either say it's because of some genetic defect yeah. or because of social conditions, and I think that's where I call the progressive side of the, yeah. of the eugenicist movement started to take it forward. Hogben was quite clear. I mean, Hogben, by the way, I, I think is, is, is one of the... It's a, it's a wonderful name, is it not? And he was a wonderful human being. Um, um, 
he wrote wonderful stuff on popular mathematics. Mm. You know, he was a pop. He was a great popularizer of science. Something we don't. We have few of those today, but he was one of those great early popularizers of science. But he had no truck with the kind of what he calls the crude eugenesis. This notion of nurture versus nature. You know, you can't. He, he believed you couldn't actually distinguish between hereditary and the environment. You know, in essence, what you had really to look at are, are the and what could you do about it? That's the other thing. What's the practical way out of this? problem of population falling. His, uh, his wife, by the way, Enid Charles, was a radical feminist and wrote one or two excellent books, by the way, on population and the decline of population. And then Titmus picked up on that and David Glass and those group of people within the... So it did have a real positive outcome at the school, which carried right on into the, into the post-war period. In more broad terms, however, I mean, David, maybe you could say something about the natural sciences and Beveridge's views of the social and natural sciences and, and the Beveridge report. Well, I can say a little bit about the Beveridge report, and mm. I, hope, I don't want to yeah. recapitulate things that I said on, on Wednesday, but um, I think the, the Beveridge report has a strong strand in it. I don't know whether it's eugenics, it's, it's, it's natalism. Natalism. Yeah. Um, it's rather similar, actually, it reflects the similar debates that were going on in France at the same time. But there is a passage quite close to the beginning of the report where Beveridge looks ahead for the future prospects of being able to fund the social insurance scheme that, that he's envisaging. Mm. And he envisages two dangers. One, one he, he, looks at, he predicts that there will be a massive growth in the population that's above working age. Um, and he looks ahead to 1965 and those kind of projections. And he sees that as going in parallel with another trend, which is the decline in the birth rate. And, of course, he's remembered what had happened in the 1930s, where the UK population had actually been falling below replacement rate. So he's predicting quite a rapid quantitative decline, yeah, in the size of the working population. Yeah. And the a large part of the thrust of the Beveridge Report is designed to try to deal with that second problem. Um, Josie Harris is good on this, and she says in some ways there are contradictory drives here. Yeah. But, but, but he was someone who um, was concerned to protect the status of married women and to um, give in, create a secure environment in which children could be, if you like, produced in large numbers yeah. and reared. Yes. Um, and he also, the other side of this is his, in his analysis of poverty, which draws heavily on Seabone Rountree's study of York in the 1930s. Yeah? Mm -hmm. He sees the key element that causes poverty is interrupt people being poor, forced out of the labor market exactly. for reasons including unemployment, disability, and old age. That, he says, is accounting for about two-thirds of the drop below what he describes as subsistence. So the key thing is to get people into work. But secondly, he says the other major cause of almost all of the rest of the poverty is, is large families. Mm. Um, so and one of the major assumptions of the three assumptions underlying the Beveridge Report and the plan for social insurance mm. is, is in the introduction of family allowances, mm -hmm. and particularly for, for large families, for families which have more than one child. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he wants to support this financially, but he also wants to protect the position of married women while they are withdrawn from the labour market. Mm. And he, he's work, his assumption is that most, once you, the war is over, you will go back to the pre to the 1920s and 1930s norm, where mm. most, the great majority of married women, are not also working and not in employment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was also, that was later, of course. That yeah. One of the things that was then directed as a critique yeah. of his assumption that he assumed that basically men worked and, and women were. That's in the right. Home, that That's become, right. Yeah. That becomes a critique of some part of the of the Beveridge report. Yeah. Not much later. Yeah, Sorry, I think Jim Thomas. I know Jim, you had. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I enjoyed your talk very much, and Thanks, as you said early on, there, there was no constitution at the time, 
And while you've talked about a beverage plan for an unruly school, mm-hmm. I think some academics would say what they were trying to do was to control an unru- um, unruly beverage. <laughs> that, you know, for somebody who was director and administrator, he did rather take on a lot of um, academic decisions. Mm-hmm. So you can look at social biology from both points of view. But I think what probably came out of that was a need for um, a constitutional arrangement which would clarify the role of the director and the, and the administrative staff and an increasing, increasing power of the academic board. So the LLC, mm. after, not directly after, but did become a place where academics really decided, yeah. made academic decisions. Yeah. And perhaps one can give some uh, credit to Beveridge for what he did then, which upset yeah. the academics and made them react to it. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> yes, you need an authoritarian to make you do something, you know. Um, I, I think it was in 34 was it, or 35 that I call it the kind of the, the revolt of the knights. It's the Runnymede moment. It's the kind of, uh, yes. you know, the, the, the moment at which we gained one of the great freedoms of the LSE, like to get academics involved in things. Um, I think there's no doubt about it. But I, again, I, I, this is again not an apologia for, um, of, of, of beverage, uh, but maybe context is needed here as well, Jim. I mean, Attitudes and beliefs about authority, how authority should be exercised and by who, largely men, almost entirely men, etc. Yeah. Uh, how, how power was exercised at the time throughout the whole of society was so top down. You know, the, the idea that you would consult, you know, this is just not what you did. Uh, you know, if you like, it started with the royal family and then worked its way down through the whole of the system and through society and into the university. I don't suppose in Oxford and Cambridge there was too much consultation with junior faculty or with the professoriate, you know. So I'm not, I'm not mounting a defence, but I, I, I feel it's in the context of the times, and uh, therefore what Beveridge was forced to do, I think, was necessary to do. I think what complicated the whole issue, if it had been Beveridge alone, maybe, uh, but it was the combination, as we all know, and, and everybody writes about it, so I'm not saying anything which is a secret or out of turn. I think she has received a pretty bad press, and I think sometimes Mm. an overly unfair press, by the way. Easier to blame Lady Macbeth. After all, Macbeth did the killing, remember that. Um, And I always feel that she's a kind of Lady Macbeth figure in this tragedy, again, to come back to your point, Mm. David. The other thing I should have mentioned, which I didn't, because I I didn't want to kind of overly complicate the narrative, was... um, Beveridge's decision-making, and sometimes he made decisions which I found really quite reassuring. Um, and, and his, uh, my old left-wing heart tells me this. Remember in the, in the 30s, as he was not only building the Assistance Council to bring exiles to Britain, 1,500 in all, and by the way, got LSE academics to pay some money for me, and, and brought some very brilliant, brilliant people to the school. I've always thought that without their exiles from fascism and Nazism, the LSE could not have become the school it became in the 1930s. I think they made a huge contribution to the intellectual life of this, and, and to the reputation of this school uh, for a harbour for free expression. And, you know, let, let, let us stand up and applaud Beveridge for what he did with Lionel Robbins and many, many others. But as you know, Jim, because you're, you're, you're a bit of a historian of the school as well, he was also offered the Marxist library of the Frankfurt School. Yeah which was uh, based in Frankfurt, uh, Habermas and, and, and all the rest. And he said, what a wonderful idea. You know, I mean, the, the, well, he was a pluralism about it. And, of course, 
Well, this is where Jesse comes, uh, Mrs. Mayor comes in, and also Lionel Robbins. As soon as they heard this, they were absolutely aghast. Good God, good God, man, are you mad? They think we're a bunch of communists anyway here. <laughs> the city of London's going to abandon us forever, you know, etc., etc., etc. You know, drop it. Uh, but, you know, his immediate instinct was said, here's a decent library. You know, okay, in, in a certain range of theoretical discourse that I don't agree with, let's bring it here. And he was actually in quite advanced negotiations, if, 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 if reading uh, uh, Darendorf's biography. So again, there is this uh, complicated quality about Beveridge, which I think makes him such an interesting uh, director, and, 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 and a very successful one. At the end of the day, we're making a judgment about who is or who is not successful. I, I don't want to get into that game. But I think he has to stand out as, you know, one of the great directors of the history of the school, Waltz and all. Right, I'm going to see if I can co- collect some questions now. Yeah, I can see hands going up. Yeah, any... any yes, Minouche, good, I'd like to see... Um, well, okay. That's not fair. <laughs> I'll, I'll, take, I'll take three, then. First of all, the gentleman in the, in the green pullover, and then... And, and then Minouche. Um, thank you, that's... I don't think this is... Uh, can you share? Share. Yeah. Um, could you say a bit more about the relationship between Beveridge and Lionel Robbins and how it impacted with who? With, with Robbins. Beveridge and Robbins. Yeah. How it impacted the evolution of the institution in the 30s. Yes, yeah, so that's the relationship between Beveridge and Robin. Lionel Robbins. Robin, Lionel Robbins, yeah. Fascinating, John. And, and the relationship, with, uh, our relationship uh, at Beveridge with other institutions, our relationship with Oxford, Cambridge. Continental University institutions, and what does that tell us about uh, his vision for the school? Do we want to compete, or do we want to be very different, or how, how, how do we see those relationships? Yeah, yeah, so that's us and other institutions, Oxbridge and in continental Europe, mm. yeah? Okay. Thank you, Mick, for a wonderful talk. So I'm, I'm in the market for some professional advice. So, Beveridge took over the school at a moment in the wake of the Great Depression and the financial crisis at a moment of incredibly fractious politics Mm, and at a moment where the social sciences were just being established as a serious empirical proposition. Mm. And at the moment, we are living in the wake of a major global financial crisis, a moment of incredibly divided politics and at, at a moment when, again, the social sciences is being transformed by big data and mathematization and a new kind of empirical revolution. So, if Beveridge were doing this job today, (laughs) what would he do, both in terms of positioning the school, but also thinking about its influence on these big questions of the day? I mean, in many ways, the Beveridge report at the time was his source of influence on bringing social science knowledge to bear on the big issues of the day. What what would he do today? (laughs) Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, I'll, I'll take those. They're all great questions, and none, none have an easy answer. Uh, Beveridge and Lionel Robbins, then Beveridge and other universities. I'll, I'll maybe focus here on the LSE in Cambridge a bit, because that's the interesting one, actually, mm-hmm. uh, because of the Keynesians up at Cambridge and the Lionel Robbins and the, some many, not all, free marketeers down here at the LSE. Um, and then I'll try and <laughs> deal with your question, Minouche. 
and then I'll leave the room. Perhaps I'm going to say, I, I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm only, after all, a uh, emeritus professor. Uh, anyway, on Beveridge and Lionel Robbins, um, fascinating relationship. Lionel Robbins, for those who mostly do know, Lionel studied at the school, he, he studied uh, up at the place, up, those places up north, and he, 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 uh, there was then a professor of economics was replaced, an American called Alan Young, who tra- tragically and sadly died very young. And uh, he came here as a very young professor in 1929 to And he stayed at the school, of course, for a very, very long time. His name is, you know, on the library. He, he, he was one of the great big beasts of the LSE, I, I would say. He never, he never got the Nobel Prize for economics, never, maybe it's too early. Uh, perhaps he didn't do the work, but he, he transformed theories about economics as well. The famous notion about what is economics. It's not about wealth, it's about the whole question of scarcity, etc. Um, I think he wrote wonderful books, actually. On, on, I thought his book on the World Depression was actually pretty good. Uh, lots of people criticise it. Uh, <clears throat> he wrote a very good book on war. And, of course, he was a great lecturer at the school. I mean, he was one of the... He actually believed that the first duty of the professor in the great Welsh tradition was to profess... Yarathro is the Welsh term for professor, which means to teach, to profess. And therefore, he believed that taking the first-year classes was an absolute precondition of being a real professor at the LSE. This is not something you dumped on junior staff. This was something where you defined what you did. And you see this throughout the 1920s and the 30s. You know, the great lecturers were the great professors, you know, Tawney, uh, Eileen Power, uh, Lasky, of course, but he wasn't the only one. Extraordinary range of, of great people, and he was in that great tradition. But, as, as this has often been pointed out, it's a long answer to your question, I do apologize. But as, as somebody once put, Lionel learnt German early, and he learnt the Austrians even earlier. And he kind of sat at the feet of von Mises, Böhm, Bavirk, and, of course, it was through that that he met the, 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 the great Hayek. I, I will call him great. I'm not sure I agree with everything he wrote, but I think he was a great, a great economist. And, of course, it was, it, was through, uh, it was through Hayek that Popper came here, too, in 1945, as he said. I brought him in out of exile from New Zealand, um, where, where Popper was quietly sitting writing his great books. Um, so Robbins was a huge voice in the school. Um, Huge physical as well as great intellectual presence and a great and a great and a great engager with public debates of the time. You know, there was no great public debate at the time in which Robbins did not engage, whether it was on the Depression of 3031, the Macmillan Report, and of course the great work that he did alongside John Maynard Keynes and Bretton Woods in 44. You know, one of the and then of course later Robbins report on higher education 62. So an extraordinary man. Uh, one of the great figures of the school. And not surprisingly, he, given his, the power of his own personality, uh, his, his position in a very strong department, and an increasingly strong department after 30, I mean, it was becoming, you know, it was becoming a massive department compared to anything that existed before under Edwin Cannon. Um, you know, a, a real force within the school, uh, a real player administratively, and a real player politically in, in British and indeed international policy. He had enormous contacts with the United States as well as with the Viennese and with the Austrian and with the Austrian school. Now, I think his view about Robbins at first was, I think, generally speaking, positive. 
they agreed actually on quite a lot economically. I mean, you know, what, what I found most strange, thinking in the, the later beverage, if you wish, you know, yeah. the beverage of 42, 43, had to work with Keynes and others to finally, and then, you know, the way the beverage report got translated into final policy with the later government, I kind of thought, well, beverage is bound to be a Keynesian. Well, he, he, he wasn't. You know, that, that if you look back, I mean, by the 20s, I mean, he's pretty free market already, um, beverage. Um, and he didn't object to bringing Lionel Robbins, a well-known free market economist, to the school. And by the way, nor did Webb, to give Sidney Webb his due. Um, he agreed with um, he agreed with Bever- he, he agreed with uh, Robbins on, on, on the on the cause of the crisis and what needed to be done to get it out, namely to allow free market economics to work its way through. In other words, for Beveridge, as uh, for Robbins. The world depression wasn't the cause of the crisis, it was the answer to the crisis, and you therefore had to allow, if you like, economics to find an equilibrium. Now, of course, meanwhile, Hitler was coming to power in Germany, Stalin was doing what he was doing in Russia, maybe he didn't have political enough time to work out the laws of free economics in, at that time. So there was a great meeting of minds, and later on, by the way, when Keynes brought out his general theory, um, Beveridge was, uh, was struck, struck dead. What is this stuff? You know, and he actually made his last, his last speech at the school is actually an attack on Keynes. Um, so well, this is all theory. It's all kind of speculation. It's not, it's not inductive. You know, we need inductive social science, not this deductive stuff which he thought Keynes was into. So that tells you quite a lot about the theoretical relationship. In other words, there was quite a lot of meeting of minds with, with, with Beveridge, theoretically and conceptually, on economic issues, which quite surprised me, actually. I thought that Beveridge would be slightly more overwhelmed, but I found it to be deeply unsympathetic to Keynes. Um, but what was really about was the power of the school and the way the school was being managed, and that was what, in the end, I think did it. And, and again, getting back, without overstating it, this relationship uh, of, of the management of the school through this, this duality, this dual monarchy, if you wish, of... Um, of Beveridge and, 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 and Janet Mayer. On the, on the relations with others, I hope that answers part of that. It's a long answer to the question. On, on, which brings me really to <coughs> relations with other, with other, with other institutions. Um, well, he himself had trained at Balliol. He, he returned to Oxford. So he had no great animus <laughs> to, towards Oxford. Indeed, he admired it very much. Many of his great friendships had been made at Oxford. By the way, his closest friend was his, I think, his brother-in-law, uh, R.H. Tawney, whom he had met at Oxford in his early days. And uh, Tawney remained actually fairly loyal to his brother-in-law of uh, uh, Beveridge throughout the 30s. A very great man, uh, Tawney. Again, one of these huge characters and great historians, economic historians, of course, of, that, of those years. The, the, the relationship, the really interesting relationship, I think, is basically with Cambridge. You know, if I'm if I be honest, you know, I think this is the really interesting relationship, you know, this kind of LSE versus Cambridge. Now, I think it's overdone. You know, there were, after all, some Keynesians at the LSE. Nick, Nicky Calder was here, you know, Mead, and there were a number of others. It wasn't an entirely, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the Vienna School on the Thames, you know, in its entirety. Um, it did have a mixture of people there. And in the same way, there was a mixture of people up at Cambridge, uh, under, under John Maynard Keynes, uh, but nonetheless, the, the, the ideological theoretical divide was clear, very clear. Um, and I think it was almost cultural as much as it was 
theoretical and, and political as well. And then for those of you who know the biography of Keynes, and I'm sure we've all read our Skidelsky backwards and forwards, and many, many other great books on Keynes, you can see the divide between the kind of nature of the LSE and the nature of the learning <laughs> up at Cambridge. And when, when Hayek went up, and Hayek in a sense the representative of Robbins in this regard, <laughs> went up to give his paper at Cambridge, they couldn't understand a word he was talking about. Uh, they thought he was mad. Pierre Schraffer, a kind of a neo-Marxist theoretician, kind of tore into Hayek, tried to destroy him, you know, and then on and on and on it went. So the, the really crucial relationship, I think, with our outside institutions was this very incredibly difficult one, a complicated one, between the, the LSE economics department, largely, and, and, and what Keynes was creating up at Cambridge. Again, that's a simplification. I don't see many other relationships, at least within the UK, that uh, NSE has with. It doesn't seem to mention Kings once, actually. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but um, maybe the old, the old prejudice of there back, back in the old days uh, as well. Um, certainly, if they had any other relationship, it was growing relationships with German universities until fascism, large numbers of German students come to study here, uh, with some French institutions, uh, Montu studied here, um, and later uh, Etienne Montu studied under, under Hayek and Robbins. He later wrote the great critique of Keynes's economic consequences of the piece, a fine piece of work, by the way. I don't think it does, does Keynes in, but certainly attacks it from a free market point of view. Um, and also, by the way, the United States. You know, this, I've written about the special relationship between the LSE and the US, but for reasons to do with uh, money, <laughs> did I say? Uh, to do with uh, language, to do with history, culture, and all the rest, there was clearly an increasingly special relationship with the US and institutions. And indeed, by the way, Sidney Webb, when he did his first or second world trip, he went to the States. Beatrice couldn't stand the US, but Sidney was, was always more pragmatic said, you know, they've got some great institutions over here, by the way, guys. You know, MIT, Columbia School of International Politics. You know, some really great... We can borrow a lot from these guys. There's things we can learn. I think they had quite a big admiration for the best research institutions in, in the US as well. Uh, yeah. Oh, on your question, oh gosh. <laughs> well, I'll pass on that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, David, you can answer that one. Um, You've got five minutes, Mick. Oh, no, I don't. No, 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 no. <laughs> What I wanted to stress in my own talk, Manish, this sounds, I'm going to sound like a member of the Labour Party trying to define what the Labour Party position is on Brexit now. Don't <laughs> uh, well, I don't know what it is. Um, one of the reasons I think there was a crisis in the 1930s wasn't just to do with personality or governance, I think it was to do with the times, yeah. You know, tough times, difficult times create difficult environments. Um, and it was a very difficult environment, as I tried to bring out, for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I, I take your point that I think this is a very tough environment uh, to be running you know, a school as famous and with its head as much above the parapet as this school has got its head above. Its head has been, its head has been above the parapet for a long time. None of us can forget completely Libya. And you know we, we are in we are in the sights of certain certain groups and people in this country who not only the LSE but you know higher education generally we can see it at the moment higher education is in a sense of, I hate use under attack so I think actually higher education in this country is actually very strong 
fundamentally very strong. But nonetheless, there's this kind of pop, there is populism out there. Students are fed up paying the fees they are. Let's be honest, they're not too happy about this, the salaries that directors are getting. There's a whole bunch of questions about what is education for. There's a post-fact world. You know, there's all this happening at, at, at a difficult time, as, as you've hinted at, uh, Manoush, in terms of you know the problems we the world is confronting post 2008, post Trump post-Putin, post the rise of China, all the things are coming together to kind of generate, you know, the big, big debates. My, my, I, I can't give any off-the-cuff bits of advice, you know, and, and I don't think that's what you're looking for. The only thing I'd say is that one thing that Beveridge did do, you know, in a way, uh, and, and this comes out in the book, uh, The Great Biography, you know, 1937 was, to, to quote the Queen, Annus Horribilis, for beverage. And I think 42 and 43 became a kind of a new, a new beginning. You know, that out, of, out of all that advers- adversity, something came. You know, a challenge to those kind of questions which he rose. And I think, in a way, I, I feel that if universities are to re-legitimise themselves, if that is what's needed, and to recast themselves, then their public role, their public function has to be restated and restated time and time and time and time again. And I, I think the LSE actually has begun to do that. I think you know, the work we've been doing on inequality, on, on, on the questions of women, on the, on, the, on the whole range of issues to do with the things that occupy and preoccupy ordinary people and people around the world is absolutely crucial. We can't run away from the world. I mean, I, again, that's, that's, it, that is a cliché. But the more we engage in a, in a brave and forthright and factual way with the school, and we don't have a political line as, a, as an organisation either, I think that's quite important, that we will be judged in the end by the validity and the quality of the research we do and the applicability of that research to solving the real-world problem. Because in the end, it's the students who are paying our, our, our fees. It's, that's where our wages or salaries are coming from. And, and we are an international institution too, and... So that puts us way up there where we've got to kind of take responsibility. Sorry, party political broadcast on behalf of a nowhere party, but there you are. <laughs> Best I could do for the moment, I'm afraid. Well, look, thanks very much, Mick. Um, there has, I think, been... The session has been recorded. I'm glad it's been recorded. So the podcast should be available in the next day or two. Um, the fact that it's been recorded, I think, is important because there's yeah. been an extremely rich and important session and I hope I've certainly gained a great deal from coming and listening to Mick and hearing his talk and his answers to the questions. I hope everyone else has done as well. So thank you all very much for coming and a big round of applause for Mick. For this